Bibles, uh, do this. Go to uh, Joshua chapter 12. My name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have been walking through this book of Joshua. And it's, there's so many familiar stories in Joshua. And, um, and yet there's so much about Joshua that's unfamiliar. And this is probably one of those passages that's unfamiliar. In fact, I, I might dare say you've, you've probably never heard a sermon on Joshua chapter 12. I, I've never preached a sermon on Joshua chapter 12. And there's a good chance I might not ever again. Um, it's one of those chapters, but to set it up, let me tell you um, about when my kids were young, uh, particularly Jay and Catherine, my two youngest, um, they, they loved Legos. Any, anybody's kids do, do the, the Lego thing? Um, my experience as a dad of young kids is that when my kids got uh, Legos, um, I... I began to be filled with great dread, okay? Because what that meant is the younger they were, the more time I was going to be spending building uh, these Legos with them. And I don't know if it's how long it's been since you've built Legos. That's not a great fun afternoon, by the way, uh, if you're an adult. It, it, it just isn't for me. And so my kids would build these Legos. Now, when you get to give your brother's kids Legos... That's joy, all right? Just so, just so you know, we, we got to do that this Christmas. But there's three stages of Legos. This is the way that I would talk about it. There's the giving and the receiving of Legos, all right? You, uh, you, you give the Legos, the, the kid receives the Legos. Then there's what I'd call the building um, and the conquering stage. So you get a box of Legos, and there's a picture on the box that tells you if you put all these Legos together in the way that the instructions tell you, this is what it's going to look like. And, and really, they're, they're amazing instructions. It always looks like the deal if you didn't forget any spaces or forget any pages. There's this building and conquering. There's the giving and receiving. There's the building and the conquering. And then there's this third bit that I would call kind of the possessing of the Legos. It, 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 in, it entails all the future builds and endless possibilities. My kids never just built the Legos, you know, built the TIE fighter or the, uh, the Death Star or whatever it was, and then set it on a, on a shelf. They built it, and it would stay that way for a little while, and then all of a sudden there came the day they would tear that thing up, and all of those Legos would now go in the tub with all the other Legos. And then the fun really begins. You begin to take those pieces from different, different sets, and you, and you build things, and a, and a child's imagination can go wild. Now, you never can go back and find the ones and build the thing again. You kind of have to die to that. But you continue to build. You, you, um, you, know, you, you possess it. Uh, you, um, there's more to build, more to imagine. You, you take hold of what it is that you've been given. You more fully endure, enjoy what's yours. So, so this chapter, chapter 12, I say all that to say this is an accounting. I mean, literally, it, it reads like a ledger. In fact, when we get to the last 
part of chapter 12, and I probably won't read all of that, but you, if you just looked, say, at uh, verse 10, it, it's going to, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, all these, uh, you know, the king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. And, and you think, well, why don't they say one, two, three? That's not how they're doing it. It's like an abacus. One, yes, one. We move the, you know, put the rock in the, they're counting. It's an accounting of what God has done. It's a, it's like a, it's a list of praise. And at the same time, it's this preparation. It's a reminder as they look forward to what God is going to do. It's the transition in this book. They have been conquering this land that God has given them. And after this chapter, beginning in chapter 13, they're going to move into uh, the language becomes possessing the land. We'll look at that in just a minute. But read with me. Let's start in Joshua chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is how verse 1 uh, reads. It says, Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Now, just think about this for a second. The area described here, if you were standing in Israel and it talked about the land that was beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, you would look east. So, it's talking about the very beginning is when we begin this story of praise and all the things that God's done, we begin the story on the other side of the Jordan, the Transjordan area. It's Moses who is the one that led Israel to conquer the kings that were there. There'd be two kings that he's going to talk about, Sihon and Og. Sihon's territory was the southern half. Og's territory was the northern half. You can read about it, Numbers chapter 21, Deuteronomy chapter 3. That's where you hear about it. Look at verse 2 here. It says, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and ruled over Aror, which is the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the middle of the valley, as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the Sea of Chinnereth eastward, and in the direction of Beth-Jeshemoth, and the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Did you get all of that? It's one of those that you have to read and you're like, okay, I have two choices here. I can just read by this or I can read this and open up the maps in the back of my Bible and try to figure out what's going on. And neither way is, is fine, but I, but I do want to, to tell you a, a little bit about what it is that's being recorded. So if you lived there, You'd know all these things. Just like if you live in East Texas and somebody's talking to you about where Palestine is and Jacksonville is and White House and, and Troop and ARP and Chapel Hill. You, you'd know all those places. And that's how the readers would have heard this. They would have heard it as familiar territory and it's being recounted for them. It's this, 
Um, it's, it's a rehearsal. It's a reminder of all the things that God's done. Now, when Moses is telling this story to the next generation, back in Deuteronomy, the, the generation that would go into the wilderness, he recounts how the Lord instructed him to move. So, he's, he tells the generation that's going to go into the land, this is what God did. When we came to the king of Sihon, this is what happened. And Moses, um, you know, the, the time uh, is up now. And, and so, we're moving to the promised land, and this king, Sihon the Amorite, he thinks he's going to stand in your way. But God says, he's not going to stand in your way. I've given him into your hand. He says, I've given his land to you. In a sense, God says, it's my land, and he's no longer going to be the king. I'm going to give it to my people. So go, Moses, you go and you take possession of it. That's what he tells him. But God also says something else. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 2, the end of chapter 2. He says, I'm, I'm going to do something else. This is the day, Moses. When you go in there and you defeat the king of Sihon, this is the day that dread and fear are going to strike the hearts of the people who are your enemies, who are my enemies. They're going to hear this, and it is going to cause them to tremble. I'm going to strike fear into the hearts of everyone who opposes me. That's what he tells them. Well, in verse 4, if you look, that was the Sihon battle. Then he says, and then Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edri, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selech and all of Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Machthites, and over above Gilead, the boundary of Sihon, king of Ashan. So, so Og... His land is north of Sihon's land. And Og is a giant. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11, you find out that his bed is made of iron. It is 13 and a half feet long and 6 feet wide. He's a giant. He's from the remnant of giants known as the Rephim. And as Moses tells the story, he says, Look, the Lord our God gave into our hand Og. And the way he tells it is, and we, we took all his cities. There was not a city of King Og's that we did not take. We took 60 of the cities. And God had told Moses, I'm going to strike fear and dread into the enemy's hearts and cause them to tremble. And if you remember, back when we looked at Joshua chapter 2, Oh, back last fall. And it was the story of Rahab. And that's exactly what happened. Rahab, she tells these two spies that have come over to look at the promised land under Joshua's direction. And she says, oh, we, we've heard of you, she said. And, and we're terrified. Our hearts melted just thinking about it. The, the Red Sea dried up for you when you fled Egypt. Is that true? And then we heard what you did to the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. Whoa, you devoted them to destruction. I heard one of them was a giant. And then she 
confesses that as soon as, you know, we, she heard that, it, you know, she said, look, we, we knew, we knew that the Lord was your God. We knew that he's the God of the heavens and the earth below. And listen, she says, I believe this. I don't know this God like you do. But I know enough to know that I want to throw my life in with yours. And so this woman, this Rahab woman who has a reputation, she believes. And so the news of God's power on behalf of his people, this, this became to Rahab good news, if you will. It became her, her gospel. And then you know the rest of the story. She becomes part of God's people. She gets married. She has children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And then way on down the line, one of those great-grandchildren is Jesus. Well, in verse 6, look at what it says. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, way back when we began this study in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 1, towards the end of Joshua chapter 1, right, right at the end of the chapter, and Joshua's in charge, Moses is dead, and it's time to cross the Jordan. It's time to go into the land that God had promised and that he was giving his people as an inheritance. And then, so right before they go, you know, they're going to cross the Jordan, head to Jericho, Joshua, he's going to tell the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, we need you. I, I know your land's over here, and, and we're about to cross the Jordan and go over to that land and take it as an inheritance, but we need you. Mo Moses had given them, these two and a half tribes, he'd given them that land. But it was going to take everybody if they were going to go across the Jordan and kick out the Canaanites. And Moses knew that a long time ago. And that's the deal he'd made with those tribes. He said, look, you can have this land, but you still got to be part of the whole. We won't be able to do all that God's called us to do unless, unless you're with us all the way. So when the faithfulness of God is replayed here in chapter 12, we're reminded that even though a couple of tribes lived on the other side of the river, they're still as much a part of God's people as the rest. God's people are God's people because of God's will and God's word. The, the two and a half eastern tribes are no less God's people than the western tribes were. But we need to hear this. It's something we too easily forget. We can forget it in, in the Bible church very easily. But every local church, every denomination is prone to forgetting this. Listen, the, the church is 2,000 years old. And if you think about that for a minute, 2,000 years old, and it, is, it spans the entire globe. And so every believer throughout history and around the world 
If you're a believer this morning, is your brother or sister in Christ? Pick any century, any place in the world that you have the church. Pick out a believer, a man or a woman. And whatever they look like and whatever their background and whatever theology they've been taught or had access to or whatever Bible they were able to read or not read, just listen to it being read. They are your brother and sister in Christ. And so, so I, I think at some point we, we get that. I mean, I think we understand that. So, so you know, what's the problem? Well, the reality is that individually we really struggle to get our minds around the fact that people who are different from us can be absolutely, positively, 100% children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples, and I'll start with a big one. You ready? This is going to get me in trouble, Johnny Russell. There's no way what I'm about to do isn't going to take somebody off, all right? Calvinists and Arminianism. Arminian. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Thank the Lord that you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying, listen, hear me. I am not saying that the difference between Calvinists and Arminians, that the differences are not significant in what it is that they believe. I'm not saying that at all. The debate is a worthy debate. It truly is. In fact, God ordained before the foundations of time for them to have that debate. But at the end of the day, there has to be unity as believers. We're all part of the family. So, so listen, I'm one of, I grew up in a house, I was the oldest of five kids, as we've all gotten older and gotten married and have children and we get together for Thanksgiving or for Christmas and we are all sitting around one big table, which is my mother's table usually, holy moly, it can get wild. We like to argue. We can get loud. We even make fun of each other. But we are still family. We've got to quit throwing rocks at each other. Let me give you another one. I've got two or three here. See how brave I get. Um, charismatics and cessationists or not charismatics. Okay? You, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are charismatics who believe all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are in operation, and not only in operation, but on full display on Sunday mornings inside of the church. Now, a lot of you don't believe that. That's why you're not there. But it doesn't mean they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I don't believe that. I'm over here on the other side or somewhere in the middle on this side. But it doesn't mean 
that because we see this differently, we interpret this differently, that they are not brothers and sisters in Christ just because they live on the other side of the river. In fact, they're not any less in the kingdom of God. Here's another one. Complementarians and egalitarians. Full disclosure, I'm a complementarian. Some of you, I'm three for three and have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll, I'll get, I'll give you something in a minute. You, I'll still convict you. Don't worry. <laughs> Complementarians who take a view of of scripture that that built into creation and, and relationships and, and dynamics is, is hierarchy. And look to the, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit as, hey, there's, there's total equality, but there's hierarchy in roles and function. And egalitarian says, no, no, no. The cross came, it changed it all at the the foot of the cross, there's no Jew or Greek or slave or free or man or woman. We're all the same and there's no, there's no hierarchy. Well, each of those views have ramifications of how we would do church on a Sunday morning. I'm a complementarian. I've studied it. I feel pretty sure of the position that I have, but it does not mean I then set up and begin to throw rocks at my brothers and sisters in Christ because they see something different. Listen, we can have a debate about it. We can talk about it. I can say, I think you're wrong. And they can say, well, I think you're wrong. Say, okay, fine. But you can still come to my birthday party. Do you see what I'm saying? In our own church, among this church, Bethel Bible Church, it would be easy to sit here and think, oh, you know, some of that other campus, I mean, you know, White House or Hendrick or downtown, you know, they're on the other side of the river kind of people. Listen, we have introverts and extroverts. We have people that are more academic and people that are more applicational. Here's something that might shock you. There are some people in our church that have a past. Really. Even people that stand up in front of everybody else and preach the Bible. There's rich, there's poor. Smart, there's funny. Some of you, even though, listen, we've been preaching out of the English Standard Version for 17 years, you still bring your new American Standard Version. Just the Hope Campus, the White House Campus. If you, listen, if you haven't been to the other campuses, you walk in and go, man, this is like Bethel, but it's not like Bethel. So different, and yet the same. We're different, but we're one family. We're brothers and sisters 
in Christ. And here's the deal. At the end of the day, nobody's here. Not any single one of us is here because we deserve it or we're worthy. One writer said it this way. It's strange how we forget that all whom God chose were losers. That's why the apostle told the Corinthians and all their smugness and pride. But listen, God chose what's foolish in the world. God chose what's weak in the world. God chose what's low and despised in the world. And so we're to share in the praise and the thanks of what God's doing in our lives, in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do not need to be harsh and critical because of our differences. Well, let me show you the rest of this chapter real quick. In verse 7, let me, let me read verse 7 and 8, and then I'll give you just a little flavor, and then I'll let you read the rest of it on your own. It's in verse 7. Now we're going to, so he's talked about the first six verses. This is the two kings that were conquered under Moses's uh, you know, when Moses was the leader. And then Moses dies and Joshua was the leader. Now, this is what happened when, uh, under Joshua's leadership as they go into the promised land. And it says, and these kings, verse 7, and these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, the other side. From Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, to Mount Halak, rises towards Seir, and Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as possession according to their allotments in the hill country and the lowlands in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then he goes to the list of the kings. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. And they're counting. It's like throwing a rock in the bucket, moving the thing across the abacus. Verse 10, the king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. King of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. On and on and on. And then, verse 24, the very end, the king of Terza, one. In all, it says, 31 kings. Now, let me make a couple of comments about all this. First, there were a bunch of kings that needed to be dethroned. Want you to look, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to just look at something really quick. It, the um, one thing you do can do when you come to a passage that's puzzling, and you think, right, "What do we do with a passage like Joshua chapter 12?" I mean, do you know, all scriptures inspired. No, it's, it's, it's God-breathed that's profitable for teaching. So, I want to believe that. I, you know, that, that this is what, I mean, God put this here for a reason. And so, when you come to a difficult passage, you can look at the context. You can look at what comes just before it and what comes just after it. And so, the verse that comes just before, this is the very last verse of chapter 11. And it says, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance... To Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest for more. Inheritance, it's something that God 
provides for us, gives to us. Now, you get to the end of 12, and in the very next verse is the beginning of chapter 13, and it says this, chapter 13, verse 1. We'll look at chapter 13 next week. But chapter 13, 1 says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You're old and advanced in years. It's one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. <laughs> it's like God's rubbing it in. But then at the very end, it says this, And there remains yet very much land to possess. You're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. At the end of 11, Joshua took the whole land. And then we get the list of kings. And then in the beginning of 13, it says, but there was more land to possess. And one of the things about it is God had given them all the land. They had gone in and done some conquering and dethroned some kings. But now, the rest of this book is going to be about them taking possession of it, taking hold of what God has provided. It's like the Legos. Once they become yours, you, you possess them, you begin to build, you conquer them, and then you continue. It's appropriating by faith the inheritance God has given us. Paul prays this thing, this very thing. Listen to the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to how Paul says it. He's praying for the Ephesians. They're all believers. He's already recounted in these first three chapters, all the things that God has done, the spiritual inheritance that they have, all these realities about who they are. And then Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. You have a power because of the Holy Spirit in your inner being. And Paul prays that that power would now strengthen you. That what you've been given, you would now possess. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded love may have the strength to comprehend what is the height and length and depth, the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying. Listen, I pray in light of all these things being true about you, you'd take hold of all these things that are true, that you would possess what it is that you've been given, what you've inherited. This is what's going on. There are things that need to be dethroned in each of our lives for us to be able to more fully do that. That's what Paul will get into in Ephesians. Second, this is a list of praise. We've already said that. It's a review of the past. It's a reminder of all the things that God 
has done. He's given this glorious and wonderful victory. And he's given the victory of, in all different kinds of conditions, in all different ways. Look again at verse, chapter 12, verse 8 with me. In the hill country, and then the lowlands, and the Arabah, and then the slopes, and, and the wilderness, and then the Negev, and the land of the Hittites, and Amorites, and Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. There's a God of good times, a God of hard times, victory after victory after victory over all kinds of people and all kinds of places and all kinds of conditions. God's been good through all of it. Joshua, he's, he's reviewing the past, and it's a tightrope that we walk. You know, sometimes we find ourselves fail, failing to be grateful for what God's done, and we just, you know, being satisfied right now. Sometimes you get to talking about all that God has done for you, why, you know, God's been so good, but we've been talking about what God's done so much that we fail to understand what God wants to do. So we got to be careful that as we count our blessings and we name them one by one, that we wouldn't forget there is still yet more that God would want to do. More that is to be possessed. So much that God's done through this church. And at the same time, I think there's so, so much more that God wants to do and is ahead. So I think about the years I've been here and I think of all the families, the individual families and the stories about how God brought you to Tyler and then brought you to Bethel. Think about the couple who landed here on accident and came to a church picnic and ended up getting saved. And six months later, he's diagnosed with breast cancer, or brain cancer and dies a few months after that. And looking back and giving praise to the Lord, there was no accident that they just showed up. No accident, they showed up at a picnic wondering what was going on as they were just driving down 69. I remember when the downtown, we opened the downtown campus and how that was a, like this plan B. That's not what we were aiming at at all in the very beginning. And each campus after that, how the Lord led us and moved us and all the things we've done as a church and all the ways in which God has blessed us individually and worked in our lives. And we go through and we give thanks. It's as if faith, one writer says, it's as if it is as faith give thanks, gives thanks in detail that faith is nurtured. 
and encouraged and takes on a fresh heart to expect more mercies to come. Think we maybe we should stop saying things like, God, thank you for your many, many blessings. Instead, say, thank you, God, for this thing specifically and this thing specifically and this thing specifically. Remembering what it is that God's done. Teaching our children to remember what it is that God's done. And then with great expectation, looking forward to all of the things, all of the things that God has yet to do. It's three things. We've talked about each of them. One, this chapter reminds us to remember the unity of what it means that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe for some of us, that's, there's some critical edge that can be softened as we thank God for what he's doing on the other side of the river. To some of us in this room, there are kings that need to be dethroned in your life for you to take more full possession of what it is that you've been given. Thirdly, we should give God praise and do it specifically. If you need help with that, go to the Psalms. Over and over again, the Psalms. Praise God specifically for the things that he's done. What has he done in your life? Looking back in your life, are there things you see God's done and you've, you've forgotten to name that? You've forgotten to say, God, thank you for that, for that thing. As we look forward to all the things that God has yet to do with us. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that even in the midst of a chapter that looks like an accounting ledger, we would trust you with it. It's your word. It's here because you ordained it to be here. You inspired it to be here. And so, Father, as we gaze into it and look at it and work hard to make sense of why it's here, Father, would we be reminded of what it is that we'd be very specific about giving praise for the things that you've done, that that would be preparation for us to, with anticipation, look forward to the things you are going to do. Father, there are always those things that need to be dethroned in our life so that we can take hold of more and more of what you've already given us. And Father, I pray that we'd be a church that while we were doctrinally serious, we want to be that, Father. 
We want to work hard to understand what it is that your word says. We want to think rightly about you. But Father, I pray that that pursuit would not cause us to be so critical that we would sacrifice the unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we wouldn't be people that throw stones at those that live on the other side of the river. That, Father, we'd give thanks for all that you've done in their lives and our lives and their church and our church and in their tradition and in ours. Trusting that you continue to move by your Spirit. So, Father, give us that wisdom and that discernment as a church and in our individual lives and families. And so, Father, we ask all this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you would, would you stand with me? One of the most fun chapters in Joshua next week, Joshua 13. Come back. Can't wait to see you. May the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you. Amen. See you next week.